on the Paranormal Gateway Periscope. My name is Scott Wise, and we're going to meet my other host, Mel McIntosh. So, our special guest tonight is Chaz, a.k.a. Chaz of the Dead. Chaz is a paranormal investigator, adventurer, author, and chief researcher at Paranormality Magazine. Chaz has traveled the world investigating paranormal locations and trying out psychedelic experiments. His first book, Paranormal Expeditions, Hunt for the Friendship, a story of UFOs, Nazis, psychedelics, and expedition to the world, covered his investigation into a supposed group of aliens living in remote Patagonia. And his second book, A Place Between Time and Space, a true story about ghosts, UFOs, and Florida's strangest home, covers a long-forgotten haunted castle with strange connections to UFOs and the U.S. government. So without further ado, let's welcome Chaz to the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. That was an awesome breakdown. I think that's the best one I've uh, I've heard yet. <laughs> Hell yeah! Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're definitely glad to have you. Cool. Yeah, cool. See, um, we have an issue with Facebook, but we're still streaming the YouTube. I don't know what what's going on, but we're still on YouTube. Cool. I'll take it. <laughs> Hello, YouTube friends. Well, I, I don't know how many of Facebook. Facebook pure sucks anyways. <laughs> yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> I had a writer friend. I might, and, yeah, I might just take it off Facebook and add our platform. Yeah. You know. I, I had a writer friend send me an article this week I, about well, actually, It's just about live now. Well, he got rid of all of his um, social Okay, media. Facebook, we're live now. <laughs> just to oh, say. Oh, good. Where we go? Where's the way? <laughs> go, go. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, uh, here's Chaz. I just introduced him, and yeah, I'm not sure what exactly going on at his age. Um, <laughs> he got some coney. <laughs> yeah, courage, maybe stupidity, depending on who you ask. <laughs> yeah, and and then some of the um, paraphernalia helps too. Yeah, paranormality. <laughs> um, they're great. Great publication. Yeah. Um, they uh, help me pursue these crazy projects and stuff like that. Um, and if you're into the paranormal community and you want uh, some help pursuing your your project, go check them out. It's a community based project, and uh, everyone's welcome to uh, participate. Whether it's our affiliate program or writing articles, there's a spot for everyone. So go check out Paranormality awesome. Magazine. We're podcast. up top? <laughs> What's that? It's like you're a podcast in there. I <laughs> <laughs> am. Uh, and so you'll start off with your trip to Patagonia. Yeah. Yeah, that was my uh, my first book. Um, so before I uh, started writing books, I maintained kind of a uh, small little blog. Um, this was before Paranormality, before any magazines were, were publishing my stuff. Um, I had a, like a, little WordPress blog. Um, and over the, the years that Chaz of the Dead, uh, dot com evolved. And um, when I was uh, trying to, to upgrade my research, you know, look at a, a case that I can um, bring to the, the public's attention, I stumbled upon this interesting case from Patagonia of, uh, of a group called The Friendship. Um, and now this isn't to be confused with the Italian friendship case. There's two different UFO cases called the friendship. Um, <laughs> I got a review on my book on Amazon of a, an older gentleman, very upset that it wasn't the Italian case. He was like, <laughs> I thought this was, 
Italy. Well, you, you, you can translate it to Italian form and just put it in a book. <laughs> well, it says it's in Chilean Patagonia on the book, but who knows, man. Um, but yes, this... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you should just do a book that looks exactly like your first one, but it's about the Italian friendship, too, <laughs> well, so that they're do, a match set. <laughs> it's about doing a, a paranormal expeditions... Um, Hunt for the friendship to Italian boogaloo. <laughs> yeah. Just the Italian one. Italiano. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't be so surprised, though, if I didn't find a couple connections that maybe uh, connected the two cases. Because both of them, um, the Italian case is a little earlier. It's 50s, 60s. Um, the friendship's in the 80s. But both of them are kind of your classic uh, contact E type uh, experiences. And for those who are not too into the, the jargon of uh, ufology, um, the contact E era were, was, specifically speaking about UK, US uh, encounters, was the 50s and 60s where people were encountering UFOs and aboard those UFOs were human-looking entities, people, you know. And these humans, they would say they were from Venus or maybe from Mars or from Jupiter um, and, of course, that narrative tended to evolve as our knowledge of those planets evolved. Um, but the, the early close encounters um, in most aspects were with these um, human-looking uh, people, sometimes called the Pleiadians or Nordics, um, if, depending on your, your specific, uh, you know, favorite ufologist. Um, but... <laughs> The concept is the same. They're basically, they look like us, but they're sexier. Uh, that's another <laughs> consistent... Um, well, they better, better be. Point, right? Well, they've evolved further. And you can tell because they all fuck. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so this, this case, the friendship, um, the Patagonian friendship case, um, this took place a little later than your typical contact E um, experiences. This was um, in Chilean Patagonia, and the bulk of the sightings and encounters happened in the 80s. Um, they did, though, continue through the 90s and are still continuing today, um, according to people I interviewed when I was there. Um, and essentially, the friendship is this group of tall, blonde, essentially human-looking um, entities that um, claim to be aliens. They themselves, when people ask, they're like, oh, we're aliens. Yeah, we come from the center of the universe, is what they said. They didn't, uh, they never point to a constellation or star system. They always say center of the universe. <laughs> um, which, again, it's convenient. Yeah, it's a weird, <laughs> weird description. You could get a little more specific. Um, they all have angelic names. You got your Gabriels, your Ariels, um, your uh, Ur Mike Michaels, your Archangels. Everyone's named after an angelic figure. And each one of this group is a master of a different field of science. Um, you got your, your med, med officer, you got your um, mechanic, you got your botanist. Um, Kind of like a Star Trek crew. Um, again, this took place in the 80s. So, you know, right around when Star Trek was getting to South America. Um, but this was kind of that, that archetype. 
Um, and what really drew me to the case was, um, well, there was a couple things. Um, one was that there was almost no English language research done on the case. There were two articles um, written. Uh, I believe both were by Micah Hanks, who's another great researcher uh, out of the Carolinas. Um, but they were just, you know, kind of these one-off mentions of this weird legend. And um, I was immediately kind of attracted to this one because I, w I like to investigate from the ground up. A lot of paranormal investigation, as I'm sure you guys know, is top down. It's I believe everything's demons. And therefore, when I go and investigate, everything I find is a demon. Or she I believe... Means. Right, I believe in the grays or whatever it is, and you you start to just cherry pick evidence that supports that yeah. theory. Um, the ground up explanation looks at all of that stuff and tries to figure out well, what's the best common explanation for this this phenomenon? Um, and this friendship case had a ton of explanations. There are all kinds of theories, and they really. Um, represented the the big theories the you know the strong opinions of, of various different camps in the paranormal um and i thought since that was the case it would also be a great case to not only examine you know the human explanation the et explanation but also the explanation that most of my research explores and that's that psychedelic explanation um, and so with all that in mind, I, uh, I packed my bags uh, and flew down to Chile to spend a few months in country interviewing people and going to various uh, UFO hotspots and trying some psychedelic experiments and looking into to these various explanations. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's a, it's an extra step. I think a lot of paranormal investigators don't typically take. Um, and I think because of that, there was this response to the book that I definitely didn't expect. You know, I the first edition I self-published. I didn't think anyone was going to read it, but you know, uh, a week later it was being talked about on all these paranormal podcasts. People were saying, "Check out this, this crazy book," and um, you know, it, it's been a kind of a roller coaster ever since i've been, been writing essentially non-stop since then for for paranormality I, I wrote my second book about a case i worked here in florida during the covid years because you know i haven't haven't been able to get back out there uh, globally yet but um i've got some plans for that in the future um <clears throat> but this this friendship case was certainly um something that i was very glad to be able to to bring to the forefront to the the conversation because i think it's one of the more intriguing and bizarre cases you know of the modern era um especially and secondarily because we in the u.s man gosh we have so many you know paranormal writings publications and shows and stuff but they typically they cover like the same places over and over again. Like, yeah. how many times has a ghost hunting show been to Bobby Mackey's? If I have <laughs> someone yeah. hang out that place again, I'm gonna I'm gonna blow my brains out. All I, right. It's, All right. Again, it's a great story, but you can only hear it so many times. 
and so the opportunity to you know travel the world and find these stories that aren't as discussed aren't as well known and bring them to the forefront is something i kind of relish in i really enjoy yeah um with the friendship um you took us about being nauseous possibly yeah um do you want to cover that part yeah, about absolutely. How, you know, how they're all look the same and uh, not, well, how Hitler always wanted everybody to look the same. They had to be you know, pure. Right. Yeah, well, so. exactly. And I'm sure some of the listeners have already um, maybe put this together a little bit. And I, I'm, again, a little skeptical of the friendship and their, their claims yeah. to be extraterrestrials, naturally, yeah. as I think anyone should. Yeah. Um, so, you know, while I was doing, and, and the book is, is segmented like this, the first half is, is my research, all of the online, all of the trudging through books. Um, and then the second half is the uh, on the ground investigation. And so in the first half, I came across this theory that was been proposed by a lot of, of investigators. And I think Micah Hanks touches on it in his articles as well, that um, this group, is potentially an escaped group of Nazis. Because um, if you hear the description, you know, tall, blonde, <laughs> proficient in various sciences, uh, this, this concept, this image kind of emerged, emerges of an escaped group of maybe SS officers or <laughs> German scientists who, you know, instead of claiming to be Nazis, are like, you know, it's a way better cover story than that. Let's just say we're aliens. <laughs> and um, this was a theory I was really intrigued by, you know, because there's always a human explanation when it comes to these, uh, this phenomenon. And sometimes it's, it's laughable. You're like, okay, yeah, sure, humans did that one. Um, you know, your Travis Walton, fire in the sky cases, those kind of ones really kind of lean away from that human hypothesis. But it's always there. There's always that potential. And I found this potential that the friendship could be a group of escaped Nazis really intriguing, um, especially because of their location. Patagonia is some of their most remote, you know, islands and wilderness in the world. It's right there in South America. It's split by Chile and Argentina, two countries who received some of the most Nazi escapees. Um, and I go at, at length about that subject in the book. Mm -hmm. um, when I went to, to Chile in Santiago, one of the first places I went to was the General Cemetery. And it was to finish this part of the book I had been writing about Walter Ralph, who was a um, SS officer who invented the mobile gas chamber which was this truck that would feed its own exhaust fumes yeah, yeah. into itself. And they were using these before the large-scale camps were set out. It was estimated that he killed a quarter of a million people this way. Um, and uh, he escaped and lived out his, his life, died an old man in Chile, in Santiago. Um, and when I went to the cemetery, well, first, one of the most awkward moments of my life was being a white dude in South America being like, hey, because the General Cemetery, is, it's huge. It's like hundreds mm -hmm. of acres. There's apartment building sized mausoleums. It's really a fascinating location. Um, and there's really two separations. There's the, the poor area where they're all kind of 
piled into these these um, they almost look like prison blocks and they're um, walls filled with you know caskets and, and cremated remains and then there's the fancy side of it which are these like plots that these crazy mausoleums are built for families and you know there's some that are like modern and others are stylized after like ancient incan architecture and there are there's literally ones that are uh, 12 stories plus high um, and it was in one of the courtyards of one of these ones it was a 12-story building for italian families who had lived in santiago in the courtyard in one of the the ground um, patches was where walter ralph was buried with his wife and um one of his children and it was well maintained like there's rose bushes and people are leaving flowers uh, and stuff so he's still <laughs> alive and well oh wow and so uh, that was my first like mm, maybe there's something to this nazi theory yeah. um after that i went further south and wound it up in a place um today that's called villa bavaria but it used to be called colonia dignidad and this, uh, I was mentioning before we, we went live, was probably one of the sketchiest, darkest, strangest investigations um, that I've been on. Um, this place, Colonia Dignidad, was ran by a former Nazi medic named um, Paul Schaefer. And he was a pedophile. He was preying on the, the kids who grew up and lived in this compound. They, they had a school. Um, Going out there was also one of the most bizarre trips I've ever taken because uh, I, I went to the, you know, I found it on a map. I was like, all right, well, let's go to the town that's <laughs> close by and we'll, we'll catch a bus. You know, it's how we backpack. Typical buses, trains, you know, the rare plane. Um, so I, I get to this town and they're like, oh, no, no buses go there. Like, what do you mean no buses go there? They, they're looking at me like I'm crazy. They're like, do you know what that place is? Like, of course no buses go there. And I was like, well, how am I supposed to get there? And they're like, well, um, they ask around the bus station and this guy's like, oh, you take the, this bus to this village, go to this address and knock on the door. If the guy's there, he'll drive you the rest of the way for like, you know, 20 bucks. <laughs> like, hey, hey, it's not there. Can you around there waiting for you? <laughs> oh, yeah, these tourists. They never see a hostel? There was a decent <laughs> chance, but um, I did, and he was home. And um, it was it was a good, you know, hour and a half, two hours on the bus. And the village we arrived at was, was very small. Um, and then it was another hour and a half, two hours into the mountain from that village that that guy drove us. And the you know you're on the compound because you drive underneath this giant abandoned watchtower um because again it's officially no longer a nazi compound officially officially german themed retreat officially <laughs> right i think uh, <laughs> that's pretty interesting and well what's interesting about it though is it is tucked in the andes mountains and um having been to to germany it looks pretty close to like Southern Bavaria. Like the, the climate's very similar. The mountains are, are kind of similar. Uh, I could see why it, it, it almost does feel like Germany when you're, when you're there. Um, but it is, it is in the remote middle of nowhere. And so when this was in its, its peak, um, ironically, it was around the same time when the 
sightings of the friendship were at its highest. <clears throat> but um, Paul Schaefer wasn't just running this as you know a, a personal pool for his predations. He also um, was working with the Chilean government, the Pinochet regime, who took control of the country by force, backed by the CIA. Um, they killed the socialist elected president. And Pinochet ruled um, for decades as a military dictator. And anytime they, they had political dissidents or anything like that, they would, they had this official uh, saying, they would send them to the Germans. And you would be driven oh. out to this remote compound in the middle of the nowhere because they had these former SS dudes who lived out there and were, you know, the purveyors of torture and things at these concentration camps. And so um, it's estimated that upwards of 500 people were, were sent out there and, and disappeared by the regime. Um, again, none of these, these graves have been found. No one knows where they're buried out there. And it's thousands of acres, this compound. I mean, it's absolutely massive. I went just walking around one day um, trying to find this graveyard. And I got lost and I was lost for hours. And the only reason I could know I was still on the compound is I would bump up against this, this chain link fence. And there were all kinds of weird, like concrete cisterns buried out in the middle of nowhere and stuff like that. And I was like, oh man, this is, this is weird. Uh, that's so, where you snuck out at night though. Yeah, the, the first <laughs> night I arrived. Um, so I, I show up and I don't tell them why I'm there. Uh, <laughs> Because, you know, the, hey, I'm here to write a book about Nazis and UFOs. I didn't want to, like, you know, necessarily, uh, uh, I, I didn't know how the locals would react. Um, because there's still a, a community there. It's mostly an elderly but German-speaking community. Um, they still have a, a pie factory that operates. They, like, sell all these local pies. Mm, pie. Um, they actually had a really good German restaurant, <laughs> like German <laughs> beer. Like it was, oh, it, they've got like a, a bit of an industry. There's this old Mercedes um, workshop. They've got this old gas pump and these like, old German cars that they've fixed up and stuff. It's it's an interesting little community out there. Um, and uh, they just tend, they have this, this dark history. Um, and so, yeah, my first night I, I arrived there, I kind of snuck around to see if there was like anything that might have, uh, you know, see if I, I, I could catch them in the act of anything bizarre or suspicious. And that was certainly one of the, the strangest investigations snooping around. And I didn't find any like weapons caches. So in 2015, there was a large weapon cache discovered buried on the property. And they were like, oh, we didn't know about this. No oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and the one thing I did encounter was um, a uh, photo album filled with wedding photos taken on the property. And the first thing I thought was astonishing about that is that anyone would get married out at the old Nazi club. Oh my god. <laughs> Can you imagine? You're like, honey, I got the perfect venue. <laughs> no, only 500 people died there. It's not no baby. Oh, no. And they're still there. There was a little, a little pedophilia. Yeah, they're <laughs> underground somewhere, yeah. Uh, could, could, uh, be in, could be in the armor. They'd be with that. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was it was it was strange. But I, the strangest oh part of the book was that the people who were getting married there, um, I would say the large majority of them were wearing military uniforms, which again, this this they were all buddy buddy with the military regime. And so um, I think it's safe to say that some of those connections uh, still exist and they might not be disappearing people um, like they were back in the day. But I, I think I think they might be hiding weapons and things like that. There's, there might be something um, going on there. And um, the, the, there was a, uh, there's a structure in place for that throughout South America. Um, Villa Bavaria or Colonia Dignidad. Um, and there's actually a Chilean Spanish language movie about the, the two kids who escaped the colony and like got to the police and ended up bringing down the, the whole operation. It's devastatingly sad. If you like, if you like sad movies, it's very sad. Um, but uh, it, it, it does get into the, the history of how Paul Schaefer was eventually arrested and taken down. Um, but he was arrested in Brazil um, because he, he hopped on the circuit. And Colonia Dignidad was one of these places that are peppered throughout South America that the high, high ranking Nazis would rotate through. Um, because if you were, if you were an SS, uh, Holocaust architect, any of these, these big, uh, wanted names, if you stayed in one city too long, there was a good chance you were either going to get kidnapped by the Mossad or at least get a mail bomb. <laughs> in the, the mail bomb from them. Um, there was, um, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name. I wrote about it in the book. Um, the one guy, he, he was in Argentina and he started a German like language private school. He was like the principal for like a decade. And one day he's walking home on the streets of like Buenos Aires and like a van pulls up, they throw a bag over his head, throw him in the back of the van. 12 hours later, he's in Israel and he's hanging to death in a prison. <laughs> like they, they got him wow. and they boom. And this was like a huge um, deal with the Argentinian authority. Like it really, to this day, Argentina, uh, Argentina and Israel aren't on very good terms because they continue to do stuff like that. Um, they would just show up and nab these guys and execute them. No, no extradition process, none of that. Mm. Um, and they would send mail bombs and things like that too, which you know would would harm other people. Um, you know, in the vicinity of these these guys. But the the more clever ones, your Mangalas and um, some of these other guys, they would never stay in a city or place too long. They would hop from these German-speaking communities to German-speaking communities that are peppered throughout um, uh, South America and specifically in Patagonia. Um, there's another city we stopped off at was Porto Mont and that was, it's, it's a booming port city, but a ton of its architecture is German and there's a ton of German bars and German named streets and things like that. And it was because prior to world war one and two in the early 1800s, these, um, specifically Chile, Chile and Argentina, but all of the South American countries. They were trying to get what they called high value immigrants. They wanted white people from Europe <laughs> to come over 
And because th this would help maintain trading relations and things like that. Oh, right. it, it cut off the colonialists. So the Spanish weren't trading with them anymore. The Spanish were actively trying to, you know, destroy these new um, uh, governments and, and things through sanctions and things like that. So they, they were trying to fix that. And by doing so, they set up these, these communes essentially for um, European immigrants and specifically German immigrants. And the U.S. did the same thing, too. There's still some remote Midwest communities oh, that yeah. are German speaking <laughs> and uh, Germans the second language, German names of places and things like that. Um, and so, obviously, if you're an escaped Nazi, the U.S. was a, a hot place. You weren't going to those communities. But South America, wide open. There was no extradition treaties in place for, for any of those countries that were after them. Um, but the Mossad would still whack you. And so it's known that, that uh, Mangala was at um, Colonia Dignidad for a while. They had a hospital there. That's how they sold it to the local population. They were like, oh, don't worry. All these Nazis are moving in, but we're going to build a hospital too. So don't worry. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere where no one can access it. <laughs> it's going to be there though. In Mangala, he worked at this hospital as like a general practitioner, which I think is pretty crazy that there's probably some Chilean dudes out there who were like birthed by Mangala. <laughs> um, but he, he wouldn't stay very long. He would hop back on the circuit. Um, there's another Belorche in Argentina. Um, there's this remote um, mansion. The only way you used to be able to access it was by boat. You had to take a boat across this, this massive lake. Um, in the Andes Mountains, and supposedly Hitler lived there for for a time. That you know that old idea that he escaped and made it all the way down. Um, interestingly, in that town of Berlorche, there was also, and this there are records attesting to this. There would be a there's this hotel where a lot of these SS dudes would meet up on Hitler's birthday, and they had like this party at this ballroom at this hotel for a few years on in a row after the war. Um, and so, yeah, there was, there was certainly a lot of Nazi activity going on. Um, and so being there in, uh, Villa Bavaria, seeing the infrastructure and stuff like that, it led me to think that there is a good chance that perhaps this friendship group falls into this explanation that there was a remote group like Villa Bavaria um, perhaps even more remote on an island in Patagonia. Maybe they they were a crew from a U-boat, and that's why they have all this weird tech, and they can only be transported to and from the island by boat, which, again, matches up with a lot of the friendship lore. Um, but when I was there, um, almost everyone I spoke to and interviewed in Chile was like, no, no way, they're aliens. And I thought that was one of the most fascinating <laughs> things I... That's how it makes money. <laughs> well, it, it was, it's bizarre. They are very, the whole Chilean society is very alien ET focused. Like yeah. even more so than we are here in the U.S. nowadays. Um, like it's, it's been a, a non-fringe topic for Chileans for a really long time. Um, the the only uh, and it's in part because of their government, uh, you know, the military dictatorship, horrible and all that. Um, but 
I believe it was towards the end. It actually might have been the Democratic government that put this in place. But they are one of two countries that have a government um, funded above board, completely public UFO research organization. There's a, a branch of the government that looks into UFOs. And they've been putting out videos of UFOs being filmed over Chile for decades. And they're as intriguing, and some of them are more intriguing. There's this one where it's like an object, it's two spheres, and they're connected in the middle with this bar, and it's like spinning in a weird way. And then it dumps out these plumes of gas, and it's like this hot um, gas escaping from it because it's being filmed on this infrared camera. Mm -hmm. The same ones that the Navy used to film the, uh, the famous New York Times UFO videos that were we're all familiar with the gimbal and the go fast. Uh, oh yeah, the gimbal. gimbal right. One, yeah. Well, Ch Chilean uh, Chile's government's been putting out videos like those for years, and so what? people do, there do, are. Do we get access them? Um. Yeah. There's. I, I wrote about a couple of them. Um. In my my book. Um, I saw, I saw the blog. Yeah, yeah. The blog there's, there's a couple yeah. of them where. I describe the, uh, the uh, there's the blog. Um, Inexplicata is a great place to go. Yeah, that's one. The, yeah, the that's blog, one. Um, okay. Where they cover all kinds of Latin American um, paranormal stuff. And yeah, they anytime Chile puts out a, a video like that, they, they usually do a cover on it. Um, and then, of course, the other country that has an above board one is France. And that's uh, where Jacques Vallée um, was originally hired and that's where he originally got into the UFO phenomenon. He was working for the French government, um, similar to, um, to uh, uh, I'm blanking on the names um, for my second book. Um, it'll come back to me, but similar to, oh, J. Allen Hynek, similar to J. Allen Hynek with Project Blue Book, but Project Blue Book here was all top secret, right? It was, no one was supposed to know we were looking into the UFOs. France and Chile are just like, hey, we're looking into it. This is weird. We don't know what it is. And they're upfront about it. And so I think that certainly in Chile has had the effect on the people where they're like, oh, yeah, aliens are real and they come to Chile. They're definitely like visiting. Um, and, you know, Chile is a very thin, long country. There's deserts in the north and mountains all the way down. Patagonia in the south, which is one of the most unique environments in the world. And all up and down the length of it, tons of UFO sightings and reports. People have had some of the most bizarre encounters and experiences um, all over the country. And interestingly, Patagonia seems to have a high percentage of physical cases of people being shot by lasers, receiving burns and scratches and implants and things like that, um, which, again, is, lines up with the uh, friendship lore, except the friendship were noted for healing people. Um, specifically, one man, Ernesto de la Fuente, was able to present x-rays and physical evidence that he had been healed of a lung ailment. Now, there's been a lot of debate about whether it was cancer or like just like a weird like plaque buildup or, you know, there's been some weird discussions. But the truth of the matter is he disappeared to an island in Patagonia for a few days and this lump was removed um, somehow uh, with no visible scarring or anything like that. But um, 
others have reported being visited and healed by the friendship, you know, reports from people being cured of blindness to all kinds of stuff. Um, but I also found that the deeper I dug into the friendship lore, that there was kind of some dark, darker tones to the, the story, um, the deeper you dug. Because the initial story is that these guys, they're angelic, they're the Nordics, they're here for peace and love and light and, you know, space communism or whatever you want to call <laughs> it. Um, but when you uh, read more about their interactions, there was some sketchy stuff going on. They would often pay people in like pure platinum or gold bars or counterfeit money. Um, and there was one instance where this woman, her boat was hit by their boat. And this is another interesting detail. The friendship usually travels by boat. It seems like they have access to UFOs because people who interact with the friendship, usually afterwards, they start interacting with UFOs. They start seeing them in the sky. Um, one guy was transporting equipment for them and his ship was buzzed by a UFO. Um, and the, his crew had like radiation burns. They lost their hair. They, they were really sick after this UFO hovered over them. Um, and a, another woman who had been talking with them over ham radio, they, there was this massive, um, really well-documented UFO sighting over Santiago in Chile. Um, the local news filmed it and everything. And she said that she was talking to the friendship and they said, that they were aboard the UFO. And she's like, oh yeah, prove it. Do a loop-de-loop. -loop. And they they did a loop-de-loop. -loop. <laughs> and so she was convinced they were aboard the craft. But no one, no one reports, I haven't yet to come across a report of them actually stepping out of an object. <clears throat> um, except for the earliest known encounter um, of a, a blonde entity in Chilean history. Um, and I discovered this after I wrote the book. So it, it might wind up in the second edition, I'm hoping. Um, but there's a, a report from the conquistadors um, who first set up Santiago as a city um, that one day this war party of Native Americans just shows up and they surrender. And they're like, it's like 150 dude and dude, and they're like 20 dudes. And they're like, um, that's weird. Normally, yeah, we've got guns and horses, but like normally these dudes fight. So what, what's up with you guys surrendering? And what they told the, the king in a letter was that the natives told them that they were on the way to go and attack them, like ambush them and try to kill them. But a, a star fell from the sky and landed in this river. And a blonde woman walked out of this star and told them to, and this is where the story gets a little unbelievable for my taste, but told them to surrender to the white men and convert to Christianity. <laughs> Which I, I, don't, I don't think the, uh, I don't know if that happened, but I, I find that imagery really intriguing that a star fell from the sky and out of it walked this blonde woman. Because of course, that's that blonde archetype. Um, and, you know, again, who's to say maybe they made up the whole story. Maybe they made up the last bit about Christianity to like, you know, sell it. Hey, this is our holy mission. Look, even the Native Americans are seeing angels, which must mean we're doing the right thing. Um, 
I, I tend to believe there was some kind of spin thrown on that that story because it is from the the 1500s. Um, but other than that, there's no actual reports of these blonde entities stepping out of a UFO and being like, "We're here." They always kind of show up mysteriously and show up at people's homes. And oftentimes, it's reported that they will talk to you for hours, and then afterwards, you can barely remember what you were talking about. There is this kind of, of side effect. Um, and that gets into the, the bunking of the Nazi theory. And there are quite some staunch problems with that, that Nazi theory. Um, and it's beyond the idea that they have this, well, first, everyone who encounters them reports having this, them having this peaceful aura, right? And um, as someone who's traveled a lot, I've met a lot of German people, <laughs> and I love, I love German people, but I don't think I would describe any of them of having a peaceful aura. <laughs> there was even this one dude I worked with at a dog shelter in... Um, Chill in Greece. He was a vegan, had a crazy mohawk, German dude, super hipster, chill guy. But like one day our lunch was late and he was like, this is ridiculous. We all agreed. We, we signed an agreement. Lunch should be here. But I, I was like, Come, chill out, bro. <laughs> yeah. It's just not a trait. They're, they're serious folk, typically. Yeah. Um, and this is, is a staunch contradiction to most encounters with the, the friendship group. Um, second, and even more glaring, um, I think, is the age of these entities, the age of these humanoids. Um, they're all reported to be hot. They're early 30s, um, peak physical perfection, um, you know, they're, they're all, the, the dudes are studs, the ladies are, are Miss Americas, they're stunners. And um, that is just not how a community works. You know what I mean? Like when I was in Villa Bavaria, they didn't all look the same. No one was like, they weren't all just shredded. You know, you're gonna have various ages, you're gonna have various body types, there's gonna be kids old people there's going to be um variety there's you know if you're ss officers that's also a problem for this theory to work we've got to think about the years in place the war ended in 45 the nazis were escaping then the bulk of the friendship sightings are in the 1980s 35 years after the war so how is it that we have all of the unless they're all second generation which again if they were you would still expect to see some variety you would expect to be you know maybe some of them are half chilean i mean they've been living in south america you think they're only uh you know maintaining the the purity of the right maybe but it it, it seems unlikely from some some plain you know calculations that they are necessarily a, a group now again of course there's could be various spins and various ways to, to see it. Um, and that kind of left me again with my, my third explanation. And I say I'm ground up, but I'm a little top down when it comes to this uh, psychedelic theory. And that is only because of, of all of the experiments and experiences I've had. 
and this idea that the phenomenon is um, with, it, it involves us meeting it halfway that our consciousness paints it and affects our interaction with um, what what essentially are glitches in reality um, you know bizarre things that don't quite make sense and our mind does the the best it can to make sense of it and um, I I I feel like I've experienced this in some some physical experiments but I th it's it's also been documented by you know some other investigators there's a case I hope to get out there and investigate in person in Namibia, Southern Africa, um, where it's this light sphere that follows people's cars around in the middle of the desert. Um, and very similar, we've got the, the Marfa lights in Texas who have reportedly done that. It, it's a very common UFO archetype. And so nowadays when this happens, people are like, oh shit, a UFO. A uh, UFO is following my car, it's buzzing me, very strange. Um, but interestingly, in the early colonial eras, you have this description of these balls of light in the middle of the desert. And when you get closer, it's your classic ghost woman in a white flowing robe, this, this ghostly archetype, which again was more popular in the, the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s, when the colonization was occurring. But what's most interesting about this is that there is a um, close to the southern border um, with South Africa around this riverbank? <clears throat> they experience this weird light ball too. But this is a really remote region. It's not really great for farming. It's pretty good for sheep herding, but not much else. And so colonization wasn't quite as um, as complete as it was in you know other places in downtown Windhoek and you know the cities of Namibia <clears throat> and this this area they see this light sphere but when they get close to it it's a flying snake and they have this report and it has almost uh it has flaps like a king cobra that it uses like wings um it's got smoke that comes out of its eye it has this heat associated with it and most interestingly the impacts that it leaves it likes to drain the blood of animals of cattle of sheep specifically it leaves two perfectly burned um, puncture holes and drains all of the bloods and sometimes organs which of course lines up with the ufo cattle mutilations and it also leaves scorch marks it leaves burns on the ground it burns the wool of the animals um, which again lines up with the ufo activity but the people of this region are seeing a flying snake. Now, it, the snake has a giant glowing light on its head. So when you see it from a distance, it looks like a light sphere. But once it gets closer, it takes this snake-like form. And interestingly, it's not just people who are um, native to that region. One of the best reports of this flying snake comes from one of the, the colonists who did settle this region and did have cattle. He reports he was out you know, with his sheep when this thing flew past him, latched onto one of its sheep, and by the time he was over there trying to beat it off, the thing was <laughs> up dry and flying away. And um, it was this snake. And there's a really fascinating scientific study from the same region where all these sightings occur <clears throat> about um, color perception. And so it's a really simple study done with these nine circles. 
and uh, well, I guess it's 18, two sets of nine. On the first set, all of them are green. They're all the same shade of green, except for one. One is one tick up the color wheel. Like if you're on Photoshop and you got that color gradient and you press the up arrow and it goes one up and it has that micro shift in shade. One of them's that micro shift in shade. And you know, fuck me sideways, I can't tell which one it is, <laughs> right? It's really, it's essentially impossible for naked eye just picking it out. So you might be able to, but it, it's pretty rare. The other set, eight circles are green and one is turquoise. Plain as day, that's a turquoise circle, easy. Um, but when they show the, these same images to this um, Namibian tribe, these Kalahari Bushmen, um, they all easily pick out the green one. That's a, a separate shade. They're like, oh, that one, that one. Obviously, it's that one. But when they're shown the one with the turquoise, they're like 75% um, miss it. They're like, maybe that one, maybe it's this one. Um, wow. Maybe that one's a different color. And they don't have a word in their language for turquoise. And so it's this really interesting um, conundrum that we were bumping up against in modern science, where we, we are starting to acknowledge that human observation has an effect on reality at its basis levels with, you know, quantum experiments, the particle slit experiment. I'm not going to pretend like I'm smart enough to explain those. <laughs> so I'm not going to even try. But essentially, we know that particles, the smallest pieces of matter, behave differently when they're observed. There's a effect that observation has on particles. And essentially, all of matter is made up of particles. And a light is made up of particles. And so this simple color experiment with these Kalahari bush people has some pretty interesting implications. That means that our language and our culture and our belief systems can have a physical effect on our perceptions and our realities. Um, now, whether that's just light-based or it evolves into other things, who's to say? But I certainly believe something of that nature is going on with the bulk of of paranormal phenomena, um, which is why it, it remains so elusive, whether it's UFOs or ghosts or Bigfoot, it's going to be really hard to grab one in a bag if, you know, all of us are perceiving something differently. If, if perceived reality isn't shared, then is it reality? Um, it, it's pretty, pretty difficult to say where that line is. Um, but that's why it's also really fun <laughs> doing these kind of experiments because shit, man, half the time, I don't even know. <laughs> um, but this, this kind of conundrum, um, of, of how do you research these, these subjects is, um, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove, he writes about it really well in the Encyclopedia of Consciousness. And I don't know if it's still in print, but if you can track down a copy of that, I think it's really a great resource for any investigator, paranormal fanatic to have uh, in their library. He's, um, Mishlove, um, he's the only, I still think he's currently the only guy who holds a <clears throat> PhD in parapsychology, which you know, academics, whatever. <laughs> um, but he, he's a good researcher flat out. He, he looks at these things objectively. 
Um, and if you're looking for like the hard evidence, like what's the, the science behind this phenomenon, he also provides all of that in a digestible manner. It's not like too grueling. Uh, but his, uh, he, he really encapsulates the problem with ESP research better than I've, I've ever read anyone. Um, and, you know, most people are aware that in like the 80s, there was a good amount of research going into like psychic children and ESP and, and those kinds of phenomena. And you, you may even remember some reports being like ESP scientifically proven and things like that. So what, what happened? Well, there was this interesting uh, snafu that occurred. So um, the best example occurs in the random number generator experiments. And so these experiments, to put it in the most simplest terms, was they were looking, um, they, they would have people sit down and look at a random number generator and you would be given a um, objective. So you would be sitting there looking at it and thinking even even, even, even. The next number is going to be even, 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 even. And you would sit there and just keep mental standing even at the computer. And what they noticed was something phenomenal. And it's uh, something I like to call the 11% principle, because again, I'm bad at math and it's easier for me to make it simple like this. <laughs> In reality, the numbers and percentages are a lot crazier, but it seems to be about 11% more than chance the numbers would be even so you you started giving 11 percent more even numbers when someone was sitting there thinking even and of course this is baffling it's higher than chance this is this is significant esp is real but here's where the snafu kicked in is when they had skeptical scientists come in and try to to replicate the experiment something utterly bizarre happened that has totally stunted esp research they, their dude was sitting there thinking even, 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 and it didn't work. But all of a sudden they started getting odd numbers at 11% more than chance. And what the takeaway was after this experiment was repeated by dozens of skeptics and non-skeptics was that the experimenting team, their mental impressions, their mental beliefs where it was affecting the experiment just as much as the participants who were trying to affect the experiment. And so it's the same problem they've hit with quantum mechanics, um, except they've got quantum computing to kind of help them out there. It's that how can you observe a phenomenon that's affected by observation? How can you have an objective look at something when you looking at it fucks it up? And so that's why ESP research essentially died, is that we know there is an effect, there is a you know, a percentage effect you can put to that whole mind over matter um, ability as it were, but who's to say how other people's mental ability is affecting that? Who's canceling who out? What's going on? There's no, there's no way to, to be able to observe that and calculate it. Because if the, the second you bring someone in who has a different belief system, different cultural understanding, different language they're going to get a different result and it's i i think in this 11 percent principle in this snafu is somewhere in there that's that's where we're going to find some answers to the paranormal phenomenon 
<laughs> wow. Yeah, no, it's it's um it's crazy stuff. I think um you know um it's 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 still definitely a controversial opinion in a lot of paranormal communities you know ghost hunters yeah. they like to stick to their ghosts and ufo guys they're they might be the worst actually no i'm gonna take it out back bigfoot guys are the worst <laughs> they're ooh, 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 ooh. and well actually there, there is a secondary camp that's coming out there now that believes bigfoot is more of a uh, a paranormal entity than an actual you know monkey yeah. woods and I think if you're you're looking at Bigfoot seriously, you, you kind of have to end up at that conclusion. I mean, there's there's no way we wouldn't have some physical evidence right now if he was just simply a monkey. Right. Um, but man, that that riles up some of those old school guys. They really don't like hearing that. There's they get they get pretty upset. But if you do look at and it's. It's their evidence, the evidence they've collected suggests this, that Bigfoot is more of a woodsy poltergeist than he is a actual animal. Look at the phenomenon that is actually well-documented regarding Bigfoot. You have knocks and vocalizations, mm -hmm. which are typically how a poltergeist encounter starts. It starts with knocks and raps. Once you start the communication, knock once for yes, knock twice for no. Eventually, if you continue that communication, you start hearing voices, auditory things, screams in the middle of the night, that kind of creepy stuff. Um, next Bigfoot, what does he do? He likes to throw rocks or gift objects. He likes to leave you a little, little gift or throw a thing at you. Same thing poltergeists do. They like to apport things. Things randomly appear or disappear. They like to throw stones. In particular, oftentimes are reported just materializing in um, poltergeist encounters. Um, the structures, Bigfoot loves to stack sticks up in weird ways. <laughs> happens to people's chairs when they live in a haunted house. We've all seen poltergeists, right? And yeah. they rearrange themselves. Um, all of the, the, the documented evidence out there suggests that Bigfoot is, is a poltergeist. He's just a poltergeist outside of the house. He, he doesn't mm -hmm. occupy a, a solid space, um, so we, we attribute it to an animal. Um, and again, I think if you're, if you're a, big, a believer in Bigfoot and you get close to whatever that poltergeist, whatever that phenomenon truly is, you're going to see a Bigfoot. You're going to see the big hairy guy. But if you believe in aliens, don't believe in Bigfoot. You might see that same thing, that same bizarre thing happening in the woods. And when you get close to it, you see an alien. I think um, a lot of the modern skinwalker encounters are explained by this. Uh, because, of course, you have the, the Native American legend of the skinwalker, which is a shaman who commits incestuous cannibalism. And he gains the ability to transform into an animal, uh, which is cool. Cool story, badass. Um, I mean, it's horrible and dark, but also <laughs> badass. Um, but the modern day Skinwalker accounts, if you're like reading them on 4chan or Reddit, that's not what people are reporting. They're reporting these half bovine, half animal, 
morphed, disturbing kind of creatures. These goat men, dog men, bizarre, warped wildlife. And I think that is because for the one of the first times in history, we have a group of people who don't really believe in religion, right? Because if you believe, if you're like gung-ho, uh, evangelical Christian, anything you look at is a demon, <laughs> right? It's going to be, you're, even if it looks like Bigfoot, you're like, no, nah, that's just a demon pretending to be Bigfoot. <laughs> like you're, 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 you're sold, you're good. You don't even have to think and worry about this stuff. Uh, but um, if you're looking at this flat out, these commonalities are, I, I think, pretty apparent that there's, again, there's, there's trends. There's something physical occurring. Now, our perception of it seems to be painted by our internal processing, but externally there is something physical happening i mean all of these things we've discussed leave physical ramifications from ant mutilated animals to even bigfoot leaving a physical footprint i mean it's leaving a print it's a physical impression um and before you're like well that's something that poltergeists don't do there's actually a long history of these spiritualists in the late 1800s that would get these big wax um like fish tanks filled with soft wax and they would get these hand impressions and foot impressions of the ghosts inside uh <laughs> wax and they a, a few times a lot of these were debunked but a few times um they were able to like match up fingerprints and things like that and prove that no one in the room um was uh able to to manifest that it was no one's hand um and in one instance it was reported by a professor that he saw an invisible the hand form so again who's to say maybe it, those are old reports who knows what happened there they, they could be fraudulent um but the the evidence seems to to line up um oh, the skinwalker thing that's what i was was on a second ago uh, for the first time, you have people who don't necessarily believe in religion. They aren't really necessarily sold on the idea of aliens or UFOs or anything like that. And so when they come across something strange in the woods, they don't have the Bigfoot filter. They don't have the demon filter. They don't have the uh, alien filter. So what their mind does is the best it can. So what, well, you're in the woods, so let's give this thing like some deer antlers. Um, some fur, some hooves, because, you know, we're in the woods. That makes sense. But also, <laughs> we don't know what this is, so it can't look like an animal entirely. So let's make it, like, anthropomorphic. Let's give it some weird bones and maybe a weird haunch. And because we don't know what it is, brain, we should definitely make it scary so we know to run away. And so that's why you <laughs> get these crazy, bizarre <laughs> monstrosities that, that have been... Uh, popping up in more recent time anyways that's one theory <laughs> yeah wow yeah it's just a me theory out there yeah 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 now that all that being said i'm not 100 percent on the psychedelic theory either i think that there is um 
other theories out there, um, especially on the, it's, it's a definitely a case by case scenario. I think for the large groups of phenomenon, for for what a lot of people are experiencing over decades, the, the Bigfoots, the poltergeists, the things that we can't outright solve um, or we've been failing to solve, I think tend to lean towards that explanation. But uh, UFOs, man, that one still, I, I some days I wake up and I'm like, it's definitely the government. I've proven it. I've got a whole, I've got a whole B theory, I like to call it, a little bit of a pun, that um, goes into this, this idea that human beings might, uh, might be responsible for, at the very least, the UFO phenomenon. Um, you know, I definitely don't like to discount humanity. It's one of those, if, if you take the odds to Vegas, this is like the analogy I like, if you take the odds to Vegas, you got your extraterrestrial hypothesis. You got the psychedelic hypothesis. You got the inner Earth crypto terrestrial hypothesis. You got the trickster hypothesis, whatever it is. You, you want to get the Vegas odds on them. I'm pretty sure Vegas would look at history and be like, well, out of all these things, only one of them we know happens for real. And that one is humans keep secret shit and do sneaky shit <laughs> we know that happens 100 percent, right and it happens yeah. in all areas in politics crime um policing there's all kinds of conspiracies and you know dudes making deals and keeping shit secret um there's entire economies based off of, of secrecy and corporate espionage um so I think the Vegas odds would be on the human explanation, at least when it comes to these physical flying craft. Um, and my own pet theory, I, I passionately like to refer to as bee theory, um, came to me on one of my travels from a, a very bizarre interview. Um, I was in Tangier in Morocco, hanging out with some dudes, smoking some hashish, <laughs> and um, this was back when it was still just a blog. I, I didn't have a, a book out or anything. But, you know, I was traveling around looking for weird stories. And um, the the traveling group I was with, we stopped off at a friend's apartment, downtown Tangier, this high-rise condo, super cool. We're out on the, the balcony smoking and talking about weird stuff. And the host, he's like, oh, I got a guy you need to meet. And... He's like, you 100% have to, to interview and talk to this guy. And he sets up this meeting. And a few days later, I meet with this guy at this roadside cafe on the um, some highway outside of Tangier. And um, we have dinner and I'm with a traveling group. And we you know have dinner and we talk with them. And he tells me some of the craziest shit I've ever heard. And it was so crazy that I literally didn't write any of it down. Because <laughs> I was like, there's no way. Any of this is, is true. And now, years later, I'm, like, kicking myself for not, like, hanging on every word. But the gist of what he said was, like, oh, yeah, no, I, I know UFO pilots. Yeah, I know a couple guys who fly UFOs. And he's like, yeah, the, uh, the their government craft, they um, are based on honeybees. There's an anti-gravity chamber in the thorax of a honeybee, and they reverse engineered that, and that's how uh, UFOs work. <laughs> 
And he said it like that, like super nonchalant, wow. like it was like common knowledge. Like you haven't heard this? The world doesn't know about this yet. <laughs> and it was really, and again, that was the craziest thing I had ever heard. Um, and um, I literally back pocket of my mind. I didn't even write about it. It was just one of my favorite stories I would tell when I was talking to paranormal people because, well, one time I heard from this crazy dude in Morocco that yeah, yeah. Uh, I did meet with him a second time at his home outside of Tangier. And he did have some weird assets and things that made his supposed CIA connections a little more believable. But it's not like I saw like any like top secret documents. Or there was no like solid confirmation. It was just he had access to some stuff that an unemployed American dude in Morocco typically doesn't have access to as an unemployed American dude who was traveling through Morocco. <laughs> um, but um, other than that, there was no like solid confirmation. And I actually wrote about this as just a little paragraph in my first book, uh, The Hunt for the Friendship, when I was going into the Nazi explanation. And of course, there's this whole theory of the Nazi bell that the Nazis had built this anti-gravity device. And I was talking about this in one of the chapters um, and just one little paragraph I threw in. And, you know, one time I met this crazy guy in Morocco who told me it was bees. And if you flip a bell upside down, it kind of looks like the thorax of a bee. So maybe <laughs> if it was something that simple, the Nazis could have figured it out. Um, and it was literally like four sentences, just like kind of a, a diatribe. Um, and one of the podcasts who, who picked up the book and read it and had me on and interviewed me, the, the host was like, that, that jumped out at me immediately. And I was like, really? Why? And he told me that he had a friend growing up that whose dad worked in the military in some capacity. Every, it was top secret. Every time the kids would ask him, like, well, what, what is it? He's like, I'm a man in black, like in the movies. <laughs> Literally, UFOs and aliens, and they're like, oh, so he, he works with the aliens. He, like, knows something about the aliens. And when this man was on his deathbed, they, they pressed him. They were like, you've got to tell us something. you got to give us at least something we can, you know, know about what you did. And all he would say was, look at the bees. Think about bees. And they, for years, had thought it had something to do with way, maybe the way bees communicated with each other or, uh, you know, something like that until they read that weird paragraph in my book. And so now I had two totally unreliable, sketchy, <laughs> maybe CIA sources that I have absolutely zero way of verifying. But that's a pretty strange coincidence. I got to look into this more. Um, and so I first started with the above board research, you know, trolling through scientific journals and, and that kind of stuff, the boring research. And I did find some interesting things. Um, for a long time, it was. Chaz, um, keep talking. I have to do something real quick. Okay, yeah, no worries. Yeah, keep, keep saying it. I have to do something that. Keep going, don't stop. I'm serious. Keep talking about the story. I read the story already. Uh, so, <laughs> One uh, he, um, so I did the, the above board research and I discovered that there's some weird things about bees. There was this myth for a long time that um, bees were too heavy to fly. 
And this came from some MIT mathematicians who were sitting around um, doing math one day because, you know, that's what you do. They're, it's like Matt Damon from uh, what's the, the movie, Good Will Hunting. You know, they just do shit like that. Um, and so they're, they're like, well, how does a bee fly? Like, what's, what's, the, what's the math on that? And they did it, and they discovered that bees shouldn't be able to fly. Their wings aren't big enough. Um, and decades later, this was like a mystery of science for a long time. But decades later, they were able to do these studies <clears throat> that show that they do a special whirlwind pattern with their wings. They believe that gives them the extra lift, kind of like a helicopter. Um, and bizarrely, the whirlwind pattern is coming back up in my research um, currently into other bizarre gravity forms, um, <clears throat> anti-gravity supposed technologies. Um, but uh, this isn't the the b gravity question wasn't completely solved though they they figured out whirlwind pattern okay that gives it the lift the math checks out but there's still a problem with honeybees they've discovered and the mystery there is what scientists refer to as the honeybees economy mode and for some unexplained reason when bees are carrying pollen um they are actually flapping their wings slower and breathing easier than when they aren't. And of course, this goes against every known law of physics. If you're carrying weight, if you're like lifting weights, you're using more energy. But bees seem to be using less energy when they're carrying weight. And this still is, it's, it's the mystery. They have no idea how this effect takes place. Um, I said, okay, that's kind of weird. There's also a, a weird study about bee nests are the only insect nests that ignore gravitational directions when they're building them. Something that one was a little, again, out of my depth. I didn't really understand the math and <laughs> shit about it. But that was the gist is there, there's a weird gravitate. The gravitational center of honeybee nests is kind of random as opposed to other insects. It's typically in the same spot. Um, <clears throat> But, okay, cool, fun, interesting. Let's get weird with it. Let's see what, like, the weird, you know, forums and uh, strange websites have to say about this. Um, and that's where I stumbled across a now dead website, KiwiNet. Um, it was ran by this guy um, who has gone silent. Um, I don't know what happened there. Um, but he was obsessed with free energy devices, like any kind of alternative energy. Uh, Keeley, the guy the website was named after, was a dude in the 1800s who supposedly had this miracle gas that could be like an infinite fuel. Um, supposedly after he died, they like tore apart his workshop and they found all these pipes with compressed air <laughs> going throughout it. And he was hoaxing the whole thing is what the official explanation is. Uh, but this dude was obsessed with all kinds of uh, free energy. And one of the last things he was working on was um, getting a translated version of a memoir from a Russian entomologist named Viktor Gurbinikov. Um, and Gurbinikov was a Siberian dude, a professor, real dude, discovered a lot of, like, it was one thing about alfalfa pests. He, like, discovered this miracle to solve alfalfa crops from dying. 
Um, he discovered these weird jumping properties and in certain insect larvas. A well-respected entomologist, great bug scientist. Um, and in this memoir, towards the end of his life, he writes this memoir um, about his discoveries, and it's it's pretty poetic. He was definitely a, a fairly talented writer. But then there is chapter five, where he describes the time he built a UFO. And he, descri he describes this as um, one day he was uh, uh, observing insect sighting wing covers, the hard shell wing covers of flying insects. And he didn't say what kind of insect it was. He feared that people would go out and decimate the population of these insects if they do, which is interesting. Um, there's also a very interesting uh, correlation backing this theory up. Again, causation, correlation, not necessarily a thing. But the bee populations have been going down as UFO sightings have increased. Again, I'm not yeah. saying it's solid <laughs> evidence, but it's interesting. Um, but Gurbinikov, he wouldn't say what insect it was, but I think we can guess. Um, he said that these wing covers, when he was looking at them under a microscope, he noticed that they would hover over the glass for a second and then come down. And he was like, well, is that static electricity? Let me try it again. And he kept doing this and kept seeing the same bizarre kind of hovering effect. And so he observed that there was this special pattern in the wings that would give off the CSE effect, which is this whole other thing. He's, um, it's like a bizarre electromagnetic field that is uh, common in insect nests, but also is present in any like weird bundle of pores. Um, like, so like a bunch of straws would give off a, a CSE effect or like a honeycomb would give off a CSE effect. Anything with a repeated cavity, it's the cavity structure effect. You notice that these wings would have had a special pattern that would have this effect with them. Um, and so he stitched a bunch of them together into like a sheet, got a bunch of the sheets and put them in a box. And this box he tested and he would tap it and it would fly up to the ceiling and kind of like gingerly float down like a balloon. Um, and there's some, some really old videos of these tests, supposedly of these tests out there. Um, <clears throat> but he eventually got a bunch of these boxes and he put them on the bottom side of a pallet. It was literally a pallet with handlebars, like a wooden platform <laughs> with handlebars. And he said this was this vehicle was capable of flight and not just capable of flight, but some incredible speeds and bizarre um, effects were present when operating this craft. The first thing he noted was that when he first took it on a flight above his little university town in Siberia, um, the next day people were calling into the news reporting not a squat Russian scientist flying on a platform, but they were seeing metallic disks and glowing triangles and these weird um, classical UFO shapes. And he noted every time he flew the craft, when people would look up and see, look at him flying it, they would see shapes like this. They wouldn't see him. They would see glowing geometric shapes. Um, <clears throat> He also noted a super bizarre list of side effects. Places he would um, operate the craft frequently would have poltergeist activity. 
Um, if you dropped something off the side of the craft, it would disappear <laughs> and reappear. Like uh, one on one instance, he dropped a vial and it disappeared. And it was found fused into a window, the glass melted together. And throughout this area, throughout this building, there were perfectly round melted holes in people's glass windows, um, which is something that was reported in the Mothman case um, here in, the, in West Virginia in the US. Um, it's, it's something that's popped up in actually a lot of UFO encounters, those perfectly burned little holes. Um, he also described um, some bizarre time effects occurring. Um, he, on one instance, because he would fly this to his research fields out in remote Siberia and collect insect samples because that was his job. Um, and so he was flying it out to one of these research fields. He found some larvae, popped it in a, a test tube, put the test tube in his vial, flew back home, um, like an hour flight, not too long. Um, it could go incredible speeds, but since he was literally just a dude on a platform, like he was like, I would never like take it that fast. I would like never go over like 50 because uh, he was literally strapped in with like a leather belt and that was it. No, no airbag. No. Uh, but he, uh, on this one hour flight back, he pulls the test tube out of his pocket and the larva is fully grown, something that normally takes months. And wow. he, he, this paired with some other things, he was like, I should probably stop using this. Like, what is it doing to my organs <laughs> if it's doing this to a bug? Um, but the other reason and the main reason he stopped is he realized that people are seeing UFOs all over the world, not just me here in remote Siberia, which means someone else has discovered this effect, this, this mode of transportation and they aren't telling anybody. So um, I'm not going to get whacked over this. I'm going to go back <laughs> looking at bugs. I'm done. And um, he died in 2001, and the, uh, the owner of this website, of this KiwiNet, was in correspondence with his son. But after the website got shut down and this guy who was running it went dark, no one's really been able to, to follow up the story. And I was actually planning a trip to Russia to follow up the story in person um, when they invaded Ukraine. So <laughs> now I'm not. Uh, I, actually, I had a friend from Russia. She was going to sponsor me. Like I was like really getting this, this prepared to try to track down his uh, Gorbinikov's family and this craft. Um, but uh, currently unsafe to travel to Russia <laughs> as an American. So uh, the, yeah. the, that, that project has been, um, uh, at least the trip to Russia portion of it has been um, uh, permanently postponed until the foreseeable future. Yeah. I'm crazy, but not that crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was, <coughs> excuse me. But it was <clears throat> the side effects that Gurbinikov described that convinced me that there might be something more to this theory. Uh, because in my first book, Hunt for the Friendship, I wrote a list of uh, similarities between the psychedelic experience and the paranormal experience. And that includes bizarre effects in time. Um, <clears throat> that includes you know, auditory phenomenon, visualizations, apparitions, 
um, viewing of strange worlds, uh, all of these similarities essentially between the uh, paranormal phenomenon and the psychedelic experience. And Gurbinikov essentially lists off that list as side effects of flying this craft. Um, he says anyone, not just flying it, but near it, looking at it, close to it, has all these weird psychedelic side effects. Um, psychedelic slash paranormal side effects. Very similar to the, um, the hitchhiker phenomenon that's reported by a lot of people who go to highly active locations and something follows them home. Um, there's a ton of it that was reported from people investigating Skinwalker Ranch would have this, this bizarre hitchhiker effect. And supposedly people who would interact with Gurbinikov and his craft would also have this hitchhiker effect. Um, so very, very bizarre. And again, it's, it's one that I've been looking into. And when you start, I, I start to turn into Charlie Day from that movie. <laughs> Pepe Sylvia, I got boxes full of Pepe. <laughs> because when you, it, it's true though, when you start looking at the, uh, at just all kinds of mysteries from the B perspective, again, I'm doing my faux pas, I'm taking the top down, I'm taking B theory and cherry picking, but I got some good cherries, let me share them with you. Uh, <laughs> First, I one of the first things I thought of, um, because Gurbinikov later on in his writings writes that this um, effect wasn't only present in um, the insects he was researching, which again, he didn't disclose, but we can assume it was bees. But he said that he discovered a similar pattern and a similar effect on the wings of most heavy flying insects. Um, that would include like palmetto bugs, um, you know, the flying cockroaches, um, a variety of wasps, things like that. But also, very interestingly, that would include scarab beetles, um, which, of course, were deified in ancient Egypt. And there's still the mystery of, of uh, the, the timing of the pyramids, you know, the paid labor, slavery, there's a lot of discussion to be had around that. And again, I'm not an archaeologist or an anthropologist, <laughs> but the weirdest mystery that most people can't figure out is how they did it so quickly. Yes, they could have done it with manpower, but the timing is pretty, they did it so quick. It took, it would take so long to move those with manpower. But if the, this effect works as Grabinikov described, you could make a blanket of scarab beetle shell covers slide it under one of those blocks and like a dude on each corner could lift it up. It would, it would become much, much lighter. Um, uh, if you think about, um, there's a good story here in Florida of the Coral Castle. Are you guys familiar with that one? Mm -mm. So the Coral Castle is this um, modern day megalithic structure um, that was supposedly built by one man. He built it all himself out of these stone these several ton blocks of coral rock um there's like weird celestial calendars it's this bizarre like esoteric monument he built out in homestead florida outside of miami and the weirdest part of the story though is that the land he built it on originally like it, there was some kind of legal battle and he was 
they were like, it's not, he was forced to move. It's not yours anymore. And he was like, no problem. He hired a truck, told the truck driver, um, don't worry, I'll move him on to the, the truck myself. Again, these blocks are several times. The truck driver's like, okay, this dude's insane, but whatever, I'll go get lunch. He comes back, all the blocks are loaded. He's like, all right. They drive to the new site. He tells them again, don't worry, get out of here. I'll unload it. You can come back in the morning. And he supposedly by himself unloads and reassembles this monolithic site all by himself. And the story from some local kids who rode out in the middle of the night to see how he was doing this bizarre thing. Um, they said that he was carrying this shell, this like conch thing, and it was making a weird vibrating noise. And he was levitating the blocks, like using it as a magic wand, essentially, to levitate these massive blocks. What's interesting about that is that in Aztec mythology, and when he was asked later in his life how he did it, he said he discovered the secret of the pyramids. That was his explanation. Um, but in Aztec mythology, there's this interesting legend. Um, there's a Quetzalcoatl who is, he's kind of like the, the main character of Aztec mythology, you know, the feathered serpent, which is actually, this is some deep baseball. I lived in, uh, Mexico city for three years and they're very on this at the museums to try to correct this because in like most American interpretations, we have the feathered serpent, like a Chinese dragon, essentially, right? That's kind of the imagery. And the reason that is, is because there are feathered dragons like that adorn a lot of the pyramids. But Quetzalcoatl, the term feathered dragon actually translates in the original Aztec to wise man. It's like a- That's me. Idiom, right? Like it's it, it means a wise person. It's a serpent with feathers. That means they have many, Lots of wisdom. He, he's more like Gandalf than he is like a dragon. <laughs> you know what I mean? And Quetzalcoatl, he is kind of the main character of the, the Aztec mythology. And there's, in Aztec mythology, I believe it's four, I think we're the fifth incarnation of humanity. There were four previous incarnations, and they were all destroyed in various ways. But to create the fifth one, Quetzalcoatl descends to the underworld, <clears throat> And in the underworld, the god of the underworld sits atop of a pyramid. And he, to, to gather the remains of humanity and bring them back for a fifth time, Quetzalcoatl takes a shell or a trumpet, depending on the translation, and he fills it with bees, and he does this special dance around the pyramid. And this tricks the god of the underworld and allows humanity to come back from the dead. And again, I, I hate to sound like a Graham Hancock, <laughs> like alternate history guy, but that kind of sounds like, oh, well, the people were wiped out and the people who survived, who were brought back, brought this weird cone bee technology with them. And that's how we built pyramids. <laughs> it's, it's, again, it's interesting. It's a, uh, I'm definitely top downing it. I'm picking cherries to, to make it more interesting. But it's a very, very good story. Um, doesn't mean it's true. But again, <laughs> half of the time I wake up and I'm like, it's psychedelic. Something's going on and we're, we're, we're interpreting. And the other days I wake up and I'm like, man, it's bees. It's just, it's just fucking bees. It's only bees. <laughs> <laughs> um, so again, 
that's why it's fun. Though. That's why I love looking into the paranormal and, and researching and investigating this stuff because it, it never gets boring. You know, I'm, I'm sure I, um, I'm in the middle of another crazy UFO theory from a different Russian scientist right now. Um, so it's it never gets boring. And um, I think it's, uh, it's 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 great. I think it's important for people to um, uh, to have that mystery and, and to explore that. I think um that's that's part of the reason we're here it's it's part of that human condition um i got into it with a christian TikToker on the live the other night <laughs> about this oh boy because I, again I, I no no nothing against any particular religion this or that but the the concept that you know one is better than the other one's true and, mm -hmm. and other people are therefore sinners and bad and or, or somehow negative or worse I find that to be a, a fuck off, <laughs> you know what I mean? And number one, that's not what, what Jesus Christ believed. Like, what if, what would Jesus do? Jesus would be chill. That was his whole <laughs> thing, right? Love thy neighbor, man. Like, there's no, there, there's no point would he, like, blow up a, a clinic. <laughs> there's no, he would never do any of that shit. Um, but the this this concept that, like, well, the, we have the answers. It's the Bible. Stop looking for the answers. And we see it on the other end, too, with with science. What do you mean? That's Big Bang Theory. It, 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 that's it. it. Science is the answer. And and to, to forego that, that mystery is, uh, I don't know, man. It's just like a type of arrogance, I guess. I, I just don't, I don't really get it. And I think um, having that mystery makes, makes the whole experience more interesting and more more uh, important. Um, you know, there is supposed to be that question. It is. It's part of this uh, uh, reality. Is what is this? What is this reality? What are we experiencing? It's. I think what really makes us um, human. It, it really separates us from the the other uh, creations on this uh, vast. Uh, globe i don't know even that is, is political these days whatever man <laughs> animals are are cool and all but we definitely are ingrained with this question of, of what are we experiencing why are we experiencing it and i think by looking at the outliers of reality that's what the paranormal is is these <clears throat> non-everyday events the the pieces of physics the pieces of reality that are outliers they're out there they're strange those i think are where we might get a glimpse of what what's really going on and that's why i think it's uh it's a worthwhile pursuit um and that uh <clears throat> you should be uh at, at the very least open to these these ideas and these concepts the, the <laughs> yeah it's very eye-opening Oh yeah. Don't sleep tight if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm. I think I've covered most of my 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 talking points. I'm sure I I yeah. forgot something, but um, you can always have me back on. I can do this stuff. Oh me. yeah, but <laughs> well, I'll just keep going if you let well, me. Man. This well, will go on for. We'll definitely have back hours. on. Um, we get that. Oh, the book coming up. Um. <clears throat> Oh yeah, we didn't even touch on the the second book. That's a whole other um, bizarre yeah. 
deep dive. But are you are you going to have a art book on that? Um, yeah, I'm actually currently working on a, a book to cover more of that B theory stuff. I'm not really sure. It's a little more open ended than my other writing projects. You know, usually I have like a case and a goal and a place to go and investigate. Um, and I mean, I did have one for the B theory, but like I said, we're we're not going to Russia anytime soon, so uh, All right. I'm, I'm gonna have to improve uh, and, and figure out some um, other ways to look into this. But um, I'm looking into uh, talking with some entomologists here at the University of Florida, I'm going down to the Coral Castle and looking into to some of that uh, mythology and exploring the the B theory from that end of. Uh, um, of the spectrum and i've been getting some some strange information sent to me by um you know fans and people hearing me on various podcasts that's why i love coming on any show to talk about it because yeah if, if you have anything related to b theory especially or psychedelic theory or any of these theories send it to me i'm gonna read it i'll write about it i'll i'll check it out um the most interesting one was sent to me recently from um, uh, I forget who sent it, but it was a German research paper about Gerbinikov's CSE effect. No one touches on the UFO stuff, but he was a respected scientist, and a lot of the other stuff he discovered is is known phenomenon. And this paper goes into how CSE proves that there is a ever pervading quantum fluid in the universe in reality and that is in a and again i had to say I'm like what the fuck does that mean <laughs> but um a, a rabbit hole later i think i've got a fairly simple explanation but the this idea of a superfluid um so superfluids are real the thing we know i believe it's helium three that does it um helium three when you get it really close to absolute zero, it does this thing that we haven't seen any other element do, where it the molecules are vibrating at the same rate as solids, and so it just falls through containers. But it doesn't just fall, it also rises up them and ignores gravity, it like disperses out of them in this weird radiant way. Um, and it's because, again, the particles have reached this specific quantum state. Um, and this is something that I think there's been three Pulitzer Prizes awarded to scientists who have researched this phenomenon. It's, again, it gets into quantum shit that I'm, again, I'm not a scientist. I can't explain it accurately, but that's the gist. Um, so the quantum fluid theory is that, okay, well, we can see this happen to helium-3, we can have it in liquid and then freeze it to the point where it disperses in, on a quantum level. But what if there was a fluid that is already on that quantum level and therefore is everywhere constantly? It would fall into the same ESP conundrum, the same um, research conundrum, quantum research conundrum of, well, if there was something like that, we would essentially have no way of knowing. We would have no way to observe it. It's on that that observable issue. The paper sent to me says that Gerbinikov, this weird CSE effect, 
that proves that there is a quantum fluid. And that's because after Gurbinikov gave up the UFO research, he spent his full time developing this CSE effect into medical applications. And so like you can use it similar to a uh, like an electroshock, like to shock a muscle to give it therapy. You supposedly can use a CSE device, just like a bunch of plastic straws or something, and give you a similar effect. And the idea there is that it, this proves that it must be acting not on a uh, magnetic level, not on a uh, gravitational level, but on a superfluid level. It's essentially moving this fluid, and that's how it's stimulating things through solid objects. The most common experiment to prove this CSE effect is getting a glass jar with a string and a match on the lid. You close the jar so that the match is kind of dangling on the lid. And then you get your CSE device, your honeycomb, whatever it is, and you put it next to it. And eventually that match stick starts to spin inside the closed object. This effect goes through the solid glass and, and causes movement. Um, and so if this concept's applied to Gurbinikov's crap, this theory, essentially insects are using not only wings to fly through the atmosphere, but they're using these little, essentially propellers to propel them through the quantum fluid. And that would explain why bees are lighter when they are carrying things. They activate their propellers and they're able to carry a bunch of pollen and shit and use less energy. <clears throat> now, if that's true, <clears throat> then the UFOs would operate in a similar way. And this would explain some of those impossible physics, why they're able to travel through water and air without any issue, without any problem, is because they're not traveling through water or air. The crafts are traveling physically through a quantum fluid that's purveying through air and water. And theoretically, that means they could also travel through solid objects, which is something we also see constantly in paranormal phenomena, especially UFOs and aliens, people phase in through walls. Um, even back to the Foo Fighters in World War II, the most shocking reports are the objects traveling through the plane, or like going into the plane and then out um, in this kind of almost ball lightning form. And I, I, in my current research, I find it really interesting because there is a, a vast amount of more research suggesting that the Nazis may have understood this CSE effect, that they were, instead of researching atomic scientists, uh, science like we were in the U.S., going from this quantum perspective. And there's a couple other naturalists and stuff who were working on this, which leads me to believe Gorbinikov might be pretty close. Um, <clears throat> But I find it intriguing that if that's the case, then those Foo Fighters were probably designed as weapons and like them flying through the craft was probably meant to destroy the plane. And then the Nazis were like, shit, it doesn't actually, it just floats right through it. How can we use this as a weapon? <laughs> well, fuck, it doesn't work. And, and that's why their UFOs were essentially for not. Like they couldn't, <clears throat> the, the side effects and the side effects Gurbinikov describes essentially means you can't slap a machine gun on it. It wouldn't work. The bullets would 
essentially vanish into the quantum fluid and appear somewhere else just randomly. Um, so again, it's a really good story, right? It's going to be a great book. I, I, I predict that it will sell well, but I can't, as a, a paranormal investigator, as a storyteller, I love it. I'm all aboard. Um, as a paranormal investigator, though, I do have to recognize that I love it too much. <laughs> I, I'm definitely caught up a little bit in my own bullshit when it comes to the beat theory. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's all you can do is, is when that happens, acknowledge that it's happening. Because we, we, all, we all fall into that, that trap of, you know, buying into our, ourselves a little and our ideas a little too much. Um, and the best thing you can do, especially if you're in this field, but the best thing you can do in any field, in life, period, is keep an open mind. Be open to it. Hear people out. Try to understand what they're experiencing and uh, what their reality is. And then, um, you know, together, I think we can uh, figure out a, a more accurate picture or at least uh, paint the, the road for the uh, people down the future to figure it out. They're very enlightening. <laughs> hey man, I'm trying to be. <laughs> yeah, there are. There you you are. just be the weak talk. Who knows? I mean, it's <laughs> definitely here back on. We'll call it uh, Charles Part <laughs> Yeah, we'll do it. We'll get into um, my second book, man. There's some weird UFO connections, goes in a haunted house, and. Um, Potentially future President Ron DeSantis has a bizarre tie-in to this UFO story. So, uh, um, <laughs> it's gonna it's, it's a weird one. We'll, we'll definitely have to do part two, man. So it's playing. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, he he. Uh, for those who don't know the the DeSantis past, uh, besides being in the Skull and Bones and all that. <clears throat> He worked for Naval Intelligence, and he was stationed at Mayport in Jacksonville, which is not even a mile. It's hundreds of yards away from where one of the strangest stories in Florida history, U.S. history, history history has ever taken place. And it's this weird side note in most ufology. It's like this weird, oh, this weird thing happened once one spring in Florida. Um, but it, of course, the story is far more bizarre and strange when you really look into it. It's actually a classic case of what we were discussing earlier, where the ghost guys didn't talk to the UFO guys who didn't talk to the cryptid guys. And so they were all doing separate research, not realizing that... Um, it's all happening in the exact same spot. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a crazy story. And um, the connection to Ron DeSantis, though, is that um, this naval station was very much involved in investigating this UFO that was discovered right down the road. And that UFO happens to resemble the GoFast video very, very similarly, very, very close. And both the GoFast video and the gimbal were filmed by crews who were operating off of the coast of Florida. They were currently stationed at Mayport. Um, so there's this weird, and, and again, I'm gonna save the, the more of it for part two, but there's this weird connection 
Uh, Ron DeSantis was working there at the time for Naval Intelligence. So there's a weird connection to him, the UFO videos, and this, this naval base, and this bizarre story of a metal sphere that seemed to be sentient. Um, <clears throat> so yeah we'll have to we'll have to cover that one in the next episode i'm looking forward to it (laughs) yeah so um well ready to wrap up then um i'll get you set for part two down the road might be a little while um i'm off to may right now with uh but gotta get your book written so we get the written we'll have you on <laughs> well, I don't know, Paul. I'll, I'll send you one. All right. <laughs> I'll send you a copy. Uh, and then, hey, who knows? Maybe I'll have the, a new one ready by then. Um, I, I don't think so, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was a blast having you on. Thanks, guys. Yeah, well, it was, it was yeah. well. It's a lot of fun. We'll start for that going. All righty. Um, so, different chest. Uh, he has two books out right now. I is get both on Amazon? Yep, both are available on Amazon, and I think you can still get both available also on paranormality.com. Uh, oh, okay. If you don't, if you don't do the whole Bezos thing. <laughs> do, do, do you sign him? Um, that, you might be able to get a signed one. Um, the, it depends on my schedule, because the right. warehouse is in South Florida, and I'm in North Florida. It's a whole, right. it's whole to okay. do, but there might be some signed ones sitting there. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> It's a, a, a raffle, okay. and I think you actually save a dollar if you go for paranormality. So check that out. <laughs> there you go. Um, I will post your links in the comments. Awesome, yeah. After the show, and then if you go check out well, your website, your Facebook, and your... Uh, I'll send the links to Amazon, too. Cool. So. Awesome, awesome. And yeah, I've people want to find me i'm on all the social medias at chaz of the dead um you can also check out chaz where i post all my articles and uh, podcast appearances and you can find links to the book um and there's a patreon for the research club if you want some inside baseball on paranormality and research and stuff like that go check that out um yeah guys thanks for having me on yeah thanks for coming on it's been a delight Stay tuned for a child part duh. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right, everyone out there. We're going to go and we say happy hunting, everyone. <laughs>